0: Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is November 9th, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, as we did last week, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? How you doing, Neil? Uh, back down closer to D.C. than I am, and I assume they've unboarded the stores after the election's over. Um, yes, the city has not burned. The city has not burned, and uh, a little bit of a different mood, I think, Um Also, as always here up front, uh, I do want to say if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about in this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with my team at Hedgeye Risk Management. You can Google it, Uh, among other things, you'll be able to get our newswire, watch my regular show on COVID-19, we have a lot of special interviews with guests and so forth. Uh, and by the way, I'm now offering a special discount for a limited time only through the holidays. I will put the link in today's show summary, and I've also pinned the link on my Twitter page. Lately on this podcast, uh, we've been replaying interesting conversations, and guess what? We're going to be doing another one of these conversations on this show. Just this morning, I had a good long talk with uh, Keith McCullough, who's my CEO, CEO of Hedgeye. We talked about the election, what uh, the polls got right and wrong, how this election fits our longer-term, 4th turning perspective on history and on generational change. And I must say, we had some fun on this show. At one point, Keith claimed... Uh, that he belonged to his own party, consisting of just himself, and how he wanted a political leader who would pragmatically make choices on policies that actually work. So I called him a quintessential Gen Xer, and we went on from there. So we were kind of pinning people down there. And and yes, there were some some good zingers about uh, boomers on the show as well. A lot of uh, a lot of people were listening uh, to this show, and they had a lot of questions. Obviously, we couldn't get to all of them, uh, but I answered a number of them. And we have a we have a polling process, as the top questions rise to the top. And and I think one of these questions um, was about whether the fourth turning was this time global. And I said it was for the most part, and I explained my reasons. So. So anyway, uh, we've got all that long conversation coming right up. Before we get to the replay, let's do our usual start uh, with you, Christian, and um, I don't know, going over how the markets did this past week.
1: Well, the markets are up, Neil. The S&P 500 is up 7.3% over the last six trading days, and the global Dow is up 6.3%. And as for the VIX, volatility has come down. If you remember last week before the election, it was up in the mid to high 30s, but it closed today at 25.68. Well,
0: that's the lowest it's been for a while. I I um, right. I think it might have been briefly lower um, in the, uh, I don't know, I don't know when, maybe a couple of months ago. Uh, but yeah, it definitely, we predicted it would go lower uh, and uh, post-election. Uh, and it has, is a obviously 30-day expected volatility as the VIX? Uh, and Europe has done uh, not quite as well as the U.S. for obvious reasons. I think there's a little bit more relief just that it's over uh, in the U.S. than in the rest of the world. And furthermore, as we'll get to in just a second, uh, Europe has some COVID issues. Um, what what else has been going on? Do we have any economic indicators uh, for we do. the week? Okay, shoot.
1: We have the ISM Manufacturing PMI for October. Now that went quite a bit higher, came in at 59.3. With that, we saw faster increases in new orders and production. So some pretty strong growth there. Uh, We also got the ISM Non-Manufacturing PMI, and that slightly dropped, but was still above 50. Came in at 56.6 for October, and that is the fifth straight month of expansion. But albeit, it's still the lowest growth we've seen since May. Uh, Then other than that, the biggest other news we had is we got the unemployment rate for October. That dropped to 6.9 percent.
0: Yeah, 6.9. That's actually um, that's actually pretty good. Um, Yeah. So maybe uh, this, you know, delayed stimulus uh, turned out may not have been such a bad idea. It's obviously uh, hard on people who need it. On the other hand, if you want to get people back to work, uh, it's the way to go. I know. it's complicated because you had the uh, the FEMA money, and then you had the emergency that some states could afford on their own. So you know, as typical, uh, as since COVID nineteen, uh, I look at the United States, and it's like the Holy Roman Empire. It's just you know, millions of little <laughs> places are all running their own policies. Uh, it, it's hard to generalize, um, but nonetheless, uh, it's uh, uh, it's it's actually not been a bad policy. And uh, I don't know, maybe we should talk a little bit about the, um, uh, first of all, the election. You know, the markets are clearly responding to the election and they're responding to, um, should mention this, the the news from Pfizer, right? Uh, the vaccine, right. which apparently uh, reportedly a very cryptic report about 90 percent uh, success rate, um, we don't know what that means, right? Uh, we've we've gotten these reports before from trials. These are unofficial reports with no statistics or documentation.
1: Exactly. Neil, we don't even know if this 90% effective rate, does this mean that people aren't getting COVID or they're getting COVID and having lesser symptoms and not dying? They really gave us no information on it.
0: Right. So we'll have to see more about that. Just a little bit on the cautionary news. Um, uh, speaking of uh, the efficacy of vaccines, we have the incredible case of a planned minkicide in Denmark, right? 17 right. million minks are going to be put to death. Uh, they're going to gas them and they're going to burn them. I hate to go through the grisly details, but uh, it's just frankly what they're doing. It turns out that Denmark is the Europe's leader in uh, mink production. Uh, they've got all these mink furriers, and you can imagine all the animal rights people are are in one sense outraged, but on the other sense are hopeful that this could put an end to mink furs in Europe. So it's sort of a, a mixed blessing for them. Why are they being put to death? Because it turns out that minks uh, not only get COVID very easily and pass them to each other, but they are generating a mutation uh, which uh, is. Problematic uh, for humans because when humans get COVID from minks, uh, they do not uh, respond to any of the normal. uh, Apparently, there's a difference in the spike protein, and they are not responding to any of the (laughs) any of the uh, antibodies that are now being uh, triggered by the vaccines, right, to fight COVID. So, this is one of examples of mutation which is actually helping covid uh, evade vaccines now this is a real problem and it and it points to something we've talked about i know on our on our covid show we talked about the development of the 164g codon right in the actual uh, rna of covid versus the 164c codon and this has made the virus more easily transmissible i know there's a lot of debate on this whether this is simply um uh, an accidental growth I think when you go to a variant, a mutation, which, you know, uh, was non-existent to now dominating 90% plus of all instances of COVID worldwide today, I think you have to say that that's not accidental. I think that's a, I think that's a survival advantage, it looks like to me. And you have something similar going on here and a bit more dangerous, right? So I think you know what's what's the broader point here? Uh, the broader point is you have a whole class of animals. What are minks? Minks are um, a certain type of um, uh, uh, mustelids, I think they call them, right? Mustelids, right. weasels, badgers, otters, ferrets, martens, minks. I mean, just all kinds of things. I, you know, if you have one of these, um, well, you probably know what I'm talking about. They have short legs and round ears and thick fur and a lot of them dig and i don't know anyway they're interesting little animals uh but apparently they all belong to a type they all very easily get covid19 and apparently they spread it back to humans it turns out a fair number of people in denmark already have this variant so i bet they're not going to round them up and get rid of them <laughs> i don't think we're going to see that policy but nonetheless uh the question is whether this particular mutation Uh, They can uh, uh, isolate in humans, but I think more importantly, uh, whether this is just part of a larger story that we're going to see over the over the months and years to come. I, you know, I've said this frequently on the show, as you know, Christian, that uh, COVID-19 is unquestionably going to be with us uh, permanently. Uh, it is going to be, uh, it is going to mutate and it's going to adapt itself to vaccines. It's going to adapt itself to practices. It doesn't want to kill us. Uh, frankly, it would prefer that we don't die. Uh, it just wants to survive. And, and so there's going to be a cat and mouse game. I think just sort of indefinitely, we're not going to get a, a single solution. We're just going to have to deal with it. Right? So that's that situation I would say on the Covid front uh we're seeing the beginning of a real lockdown in in Europe right and I'm certainly going to talk about this on the show on on uh, Thursday national lockdowns in the UK in France Germany Poland although in Poland they're politically correct on the populist side they're not calling it a lockdown <laughs> but in effect it is a lockdown and then much of much of uh, central Europe um including uh, Czechia, you know, the Czech Republic and Slovakia and uh, Austria. You know, this is, I think, a little bit why, uh, also why the uh, the markets are a little bit more rest- restrained in Europe. One thing we didn't talk about uh, is, you know, people are asking, how's the market responding? With regard to the politics, let me just say, I'm not going to say much about it at all, because we talk a lot, I think, uh, with with Keith uh, on the conversation coming up, talked a lot about uh, uh, particularly how the polls got it right and got it wrong and sort of the 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 politics going forward. But I, I think we want to talk a little bit about uh, Biden and the economy. Um, and I think in general, uh, the response has been positive. I think markets are responding positively, completely aside from the end of uncertainty. There is a consensus that uh biden's policies will be a little bit more predictable stable you know trump actually um bragged about the fact that he always wanted to surprise people right i mean in fact that was his negotiating technique you know never never let your adversary know what you're going to (laughs) do well he often didn't let you know the american people know what he's going to want to do right i mean he just sort of wow where did that come from right and I think that uh, Biden's style is very different. Um, I do think there are advantages uh, to Trump's style, particularly dealing with adversaries. Uh, I think it's a little bit more non-productive when you deal with, uh, you know, your own uh, your own citizens that way. But I think Biden has made it very clear that he wants to um, he wants to have you know longer-term policy strategies for different you know, The kind of ways going to do about higher education, ways going to do about uh, health and and antitrust, and so forth. I think it's also very clear that everything that he is going to do is going to be on the moderate side of the spectrum. Uh, and as we talk about a little bit, again, I don't want to upstage my conversation with Keith, but I think one of the places that the Democrats really got in trouble was down the ticket, not so much in voters deciding you know, to choose Biden rather than Trump, but down the ticket where they actually – uh delivered somewhat of a rebuff uh to the Democratic Party brand, right? I mean you look at it. I mean all of the close states they lost Senate races. Uh they actually managed to lose uh uh House seats, which is just incredible to me. And um and they didn't do all that well in the in the in the state elections either. They actually lost a governor uh, of course, that was in montana that was that was Bullock who actually tried to run for Senate Well you know that was a mistake right sure. <laughs> didn't didn't <laughs> win that one but my my point is though that there was a sense that uh the Democratic Party is unfocused. They are more of a coalition party than the uh republicans that's a strength uh because it means you're reaching out to people who are ideologically different. I think the Republican party is much more ideologically homogeneous. Uh, but the democratic party really has very different kinds of constituents uh constituencies as we as we see time and again through history that can be wielded as a very great strength uh, just think of franklin Delano roosevelt how he put together you know northern urban liberals with um, uh, uh jim crow southerners right and yet he 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 created out of them a very powerful coalition he didn't get anything, everything he wanted, obviously, uh, from from any of them. But he was able to work this successfully. Um, this is the success scenario for Biden, but it it requires control. It especially requires control of your branding and your message. Uh, as you know, I've been frequently critical on this show and in other places that Biden was not sufficiently controlling his message, and I think particularly they got tripped up. Uh, on issues of race and crime. There's no doubt about it. We have exit polls showing that that was a huge motivator for voters, and it was a problem for Democrats in moderate House districts and in in states with uh, very close uh, Senate elections. So they need more control over that, particularly for things that that are symbolic, uh, sort of ideological markers, which aren't going to change any practical policy. You know what I mean? Um, So... You know, we're not going to ban fracking in this country. It's just, you know, it's not going to happen. It really makes no sense, regardless of what you think about global warming. And so, what do you want to do? You want to lose a few House seats in Pennsylvania and other places just because you really think it's important to talk about your desire to do that? Uh, No, you're smart about it. You figure, okay, yeah, this is a general policy I want to pursue. We're going to do it in a different way, right? So, I think. If Biden is smart, I think he's going to do that, and I think not only is he going to start with very moderate policies, I think we've talked about that. Uh, he's going to—he's obviously not going to do anything like, um, you know, single payer. He's going to call it uh, uh, buy-in for Medicare. He's going to have a, a special. Uh, uh, he may lower the minimum age for Medicare and he may have a buy-in for Obamacare that will be like Medicare. And everyone's just going to say, gee, that's like uh, apple pie. You know, that's like America and apple pie. That's, well, there's nothing left wing <laughs> about that. I mean, what's left wing about Medicare? You know, that just sounds comfortable. sounds like my grandmother, you know? So this is the smart strategy right now. You, you introduce, policies and new frameworks which are objectively actually pretty radical or potentially radical but you do it in a um in a way that seems utterly non-threatening ideologically and this is uh, a secret that i think or a a a, an approach that i think uh, many democrats just don't yet quite understand so we're going to see biden on the economy um i i have predicted and we talk a little bit about that with Keith about the threat of, uh, you know, the long term threat about increasing inflation, the possibility of a bond market crash, uh, real danger to nominal assets. Uh, Anyway, we'll talk about that on the show. The other thing I talk about for a second is Biden and the rest of the world. Well, look, we've looked at that. We've looked at the opinion of the rest of the world toward presidencies and I'll tell you this is just in a clear pattern, right? It it goes away up when Democrats have been president. I don't want to be partisan about it. I'm just saying just absolute statement of fact, right? Uh it was um it was high for Clinton. It actually was high for Bush early on. You remember that was his first election when both parties ran a very non-ideological campaign. Uh, Bush campaigned as the compassionate conservative and and Gore campaigned. You remember in, in 2000 as the uh, kind of neoliberal, you know, he was okay with markets. And I think at that time that the markets actually didn't differentiate too much between them. That changed into Bush's presidency, uh, GW's presidency, and it became very exaggerated with Obama. You know, people fell in love with Obama around the world. And as soon as Obama came out and Trump came in, it just went hugely the other way. Uh, and I believe it's going to come back again. Uh, and there are reasons for that, which hopefully we can talk about. The reaction has come in from the rest of the world. Um, and this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, we have no response uh, yet. No congratulations to Joe Biden yet from, gee, all the strong men around the world. Uh, Vladimir Putin, you know Xi Jinping, uh, Recep Erdogan. Uh, AMLO in in Mexico, Jair Bolsonaro. I mean, it kind of go around, right? These are all, um, I mean, what are we going to do about Vladimir Putin? I mean, uh, is this the end of the bromance, I guess, right? Uh, I think uh, you will see certainly perhaps abrupt changes in in certain relationships uh, with countries like Israel. It's going to be uh, more directly affected by that shift. What do you What do you make of this? I know we do have a couple of cases where, um, you know, you have populist leaders who have congratulated Biden. Interestingly enough, these are the two uh, obvious Central American, uh, excuse me, Central European uh, leaders we can think of, uh, Viktor Orban and Andrzej Duda, right? This is the uh, Polish president and the the prime minister of uh, Hungary. Definitely, um, right-wing populists. Both, on they're congratulating Biden. I think because uh, they have a very different view of Putin (laughs) than than Donald Trump does. I think that's clearly uh, clearly the reason there. But interestingly, you know, she and and Erdogan and some of these people, um, I think. They they both realize that they will win and lose with Biden. And again, we've talked about on this show. I remember Biden was competing with Trump about who would be tougher on Russia, certainly on Russia, but also on China, right? Uh, and right. and and look, Biden and the Democrats are going to be much harsher in raising the human rights objection. I don't think uh, I don't think Donald Trump particularly cared at all about that uh and i don't think ultimately uh that was that was a a concern that uh, anyone at the white house dared dared speak up about so i think this goes both ways i've argued very often uh, and certainly in my news wires uh, that we see the desire among americans for global engagement rising not falling although there's a big partisan shift on this right in the republican party we see a certain gravitation, increasingly toward isolationism, unwillingness to, for instance, engage in conflict with the rest of the world. Whereas it's actually going the opposite way among Democrats. So I find that fascinating because it's a little bit counterintuitive. So, I don't know. With that, I think I've just briefly co- covered the waterfront here. Why don't we get on with it? Uh, why don't we get into the um, to the conversation? I guess I should just uh, conclude this by you know saying that, as always. Thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Uh, talk to you again next week.
2: Hi, I'm Keith McCall, and welcome back to Hedge Eye TV for another real conversation with the world's renowned demographer, uh, the one and only Neil Howe. Neil, good to see you. Keith,
0: great to see you again.
2: You know, there's a couple things going on that people probably want to talk about. They want to get <laughs> Neil's opinion. So we're going to get into that. First, though, I wanted to, because we are going to talk uh, about the fourth turning. That is, uh, that is what you authored. And maybe just for people that don't know, uh, we'll give them a, you know, maybe if you give them a quick, you know, overview of what that is and then we'll get into some topics.
0: Well, the, uh, the thesis of the four turn- turning, which we um, laid out in books that came out in 1991, but mo- more notably in 1997, uh, is a theory that uh, history moves through recurring patterns or cycles or rhythms. and uh, and that that, uh, four stages, it's kind of like seasons of the year and that the last season is the winter season and that's the crisis era when institutions are um, torn down and rebuilt uh, uh, relatively rapidly, tremendous amount of political engagement going on and uh, and that we're in one right now, right? Uh, We have one of these roughly every 80 or 90 years Uh, starting from the 1680s in both the colonies and in, um, well, really throughout Anglo-America. But we've had one, you know, the American Revolution, the Civil War, the New Deal, the Great Depression, and we're back in one. What drives these rhythms is um, generational change. And uh, obviously, a lot of my work has been involved in talking about generations, defining them, uh, understanding their dynamics. And Crises aren't the only rhythms uh, that we talk about historically. We also talk about rhythms of awakenings, right? not reshaping the outer world of economics and politics, reshaping the inner world of culture, values, religion. Uh, these also follow an interesting pattern. They occur roughly halfway in between these great outer world crises. And uh, and all of this is interwoven with a distinct pattern
2: of generational change. and.
0: I don't know is that that's a little summary right yeah, there
2: that's perfect now 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 you get to get into the fun stuff which is to put the <laughs> uh put the biden trump uh, debate and and all the political zeitgeist that goes alongside it you know in where are we in that history
0: well we're about halfway through uh we think that this started uh 2008 2009 with the gfc uh it kind of got its second hit this year uh but it's going to go on all the way until the year 2030. You know, maybe a little bit before, a little bit after. So it's a 22 year period, roughly the length of a generation. And uh, it, we're getting deeper into it. Uh, the interesting thing about this uh, election, and actually this is a trend that started in uh, 2018, is the sudden huge improvement, I should say improvement, but rise in uh, civic participation, namely as measured by voter participation. In 2018, in the by-election, that was the um, the highest voter participation rate in a by-election going back 100 years, all the way until 20, uh, 1914. Wow! Uh, and the, this year, it looks as though this is the national election project. They've just calculated it. <clears throat> Think of this, Keith. Since 1972, the uh, share of eligible voters who actually vote has only three times risen, just barely over 60%. Uh, this year, it's going to be something like 66.5%. That's the highest since 1900. That was the, that was when William McKinley ran for the second time against William Jennings Bryan. Uh, so this, in a way, you'd say is good news. I mean, uh, come on. I mean, how many decades after decade do we complain Americans are apathetic, they're disengaged, you know, they don't care about... You know, what's the... Ma- well, say what you will about the Trump era. Love him or hate him. This guy has gotten Americans on both sides re with politics, right? They really care now what's going on. The bad news is kind of a good news, bad news story. Uh, the bad news is the reason they're re-engaged is because they think the other side is going to destroy America. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, a lot of it is driven by hatred and fear. I hate to say it. Negative motivations matter in politics. Um, Some nine out of 10 voters on both sides believe the other side will do permanent harm to America. Uh, Both sides overwhelmingly say that it matters in terms of policy. No more of these complaints about Tweedledum, Tweedledee. When when Bush ran against Gore, you remember, uh, G.W. Bush ran against Gore in 2000, a huge share of voters said, that doesn't make any difference right this this election doesn't matter these people gore was running as a neoliberal <laughs> george bush was running as a compassionate conservative do you remember that and everyone just said this doesn't matter right <laughs> that has completely changed today so you could say that that's actually a benefit voters are being given clear choices today um but one of the costs we see is this growing polarization in america whereby Everyone is increasingly aligned on policies that are diametrically opposed to each other. And you can see this most clearly. Um, This was actually described uh, uh, in a book by um, uh, 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 an author named Bishop. This was called The Big Sort. It came out about 10 years ago. But he described how increasingly people are relocating with uh, voters that think the same way. Wow. So one, one fascinating thing is, if you look at landslide counties, that is to say, counties in which uh, one, uh, the, the winning candidate beats the other candidate by at least 20 percentage points. That number is growing and growing and growing. Think of this, Keith. Back when Bill Clinton uh, ran against uh, George Bush Sr., That was 1992, uh, only 38 percent of America's counties were landslide counties. In 2016, when Hillary Clinton ran against Trump, 60% of America's counties were landslide. And we think that in this current election, it probably is going to be up at around 65%. And one interesting thing you see, too, is happening is that the, uh, the, the progressive side, the Democratic side, is getting bigger and bigger minorities on a smaller bigger and bigger majorities on a smaller and smaller number of U.S. counties. Mm. So most counties, the majority is going for Republicans. So I have, I have one good comparison to you. You'll enjoy this. Uh, when Bill Clinton won in 1992, uh, he was a Democrat, and he got almost 50 percent of America's counties. Now, his popular majority was about 6 percent. It wasn't that much larger than we expect Biden's to be. We think Biden is going to come in at around 4.5 percent uh, popular margin. So it was around six, six point five percent. He got almost half of America's counties. He got something like fifteen hundred counties in, you know, thirty-one hundred. Hillary Clinton, who won by two percentage points of the popular vote in 2016, she got only four hundred and ninety counties. Four hundred and ninety out of thirty-one hundred. And we think that this year, even though Biden's going to get back to like 4.5 percent, he'll only have about 550 American counties, yeah, amazing. huge, huge majorities in those counties. Wow. But this is the problem. I mean, this is the danger of what America faces right now.
2: Now that I'm assuming you're not counting the county of Canada, but uh, you know it is—it is amazing because I have Connecticut, Canada, you know, a little alliteration for you there, and it is exactly the same thing. I mean, they all hate Trump. Uh, to 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 drive around with a couple of Trump flags with a, with an S with like a big truck or something like that would look a little weird in Connecticut. And that's why the, the, the Trumpsters did it. But again, this um, I guess I guess this engagement geographically that you're talking about, does that does that spark or does that provide a perpetual catalyst, more fire, more fuel to the fire, uh, into this fourth turning as it goes through, towards the year 2030 or not?
0: Well, it does. And and you know, one of the problems when you have two parties that are both competitive, you know, they're both near 50 percent. They both have a chance of regaining power. And there are a number of great books on the history of this throughout American history, you know, going back to the founders. But it turns out that these can be very unstable periods, meaning that if each party is mostly focused on gaining power, it's actually going to invite polarization because it wants to define its brand. It wants anything to give it an edge. And you know, its, first, its first concern is getting power. Now, what typically happens is, is that, in, in, and this particularly happens in a fourth turning, one party achieves dominance. Often suddenly, right? And you have a big election, uh, 1932 followed by 1936 would be a great, you know, example of that, where suddenly it's no longer competitive anymore. And then the minority party actually has a different incentive. It still needs to show results for its voters, right? But it no longer is competitive, so it's no longer trying. To, it's it's rather sort of compliant, obsequious. It kind of goes along. It wants to do deals with the majority party so it can bring home the bacon to its voters. You saw that, you know, Bob Michael, uh, so re- we don't remember him today, but he was um, uh, uh, back in the 1980s, and he, he always used to say, uh, well, you know, this is what you expect of a, of a minority party. You know, it, 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 it goes along to get along, but, of course, that damages its chances for ever regaining uh, power, right? In other words, by, by, by always deferring to the majority party, you sort of give up your chance to reclaim. So it's kind of an all or nothing struggle. Um, Hmm. I think eventually one party is going to gain big dominance. Sometimes it's hard to know which party that's going to be. Sometimes we forget that before FDR won in 1932, uh, Herbert Hoover won in 1928 with one of the largest popular margins in American history. so it can swing radically uh, one way or the other, depending on which party is successful at getting the coalition. Um, and and obviously you need to do two things: you need to shore up your base, you know, you need to reinforce your brand to your base. On the other hand, you have to be successful at reaching out to other constituencies, of so putting together a coalition, which might involve uh, parties, uh, you know, groups not like you. I think. The the Republicans are doing better at firing up their base, and and Democrats are doing better at reaching out for a coalition. The, mm. FDR did this famously, right? I mean, he had the he had the the Southern Democrats on board, which gave him that huge majority in Congress. But of course, in return, he had to leave Jim Crow and civil rights alone, right? He couldn't even sign a he couldn't even support an anti-lynching law, which came up in in the very late 1930s. Uh, and that was the that was the bargain. And FDR said, we have huge things we want to do to rebuild our country. Uh, we're facing a crisis. We need to make deals. Yeah. yeah. And, and so ultimately, uh, they were very successful at actually arranging that co- kind of coalition. Uh, the Republicans weren't. And the Republicans went into kind of a permanent congressional majority for, for many decades.
2: That's interesting. I mean, like uh, I've been citing this book called Rainbow's End uh, recently which leads you up to the crash of 1929, of course. So it's very interesting that you make that point about Hoover and and who would have thought, you know, in 1928, 1929 when everyone was feeling, you know, so sure that that was the new era or that was going to be the future. I know. That that was the beginning of the absolute end. I mean, you know, so when you put that in context of today, you get a lot of uh, obviously a lot of people with blue flags that are feeling much better and a lot of people with red flags that are pissed off. Um, you know, how, do you need to put it into, into a square, you know, a square into a round hole? Or, like, what do you need to do from the lessons of the prior turn? Um, and how, how should people use that, that, that guide of history? Well, again, I think,
0: uh, obviously, uh, there are generational reasons to be very concerned if you're a Republican, namely that we do see a great deal of generational continuity. The uh, the in other words who you vote for and who you bond with in your uh, in your early 20s uh, you know late teens early 20s when you first start to vote uh, definitely carries with you uh, mm-hmm. right so if you came of age as a young adult in the uh, in the early to mid 1930s you're a lifelong Democrat right I mean even in the Great Society you're still you know uh, uh, You know, you're still worshiping FDR. You're, you know, the, you're remembering his, him as an icon. And so you're always supporting unions. You're always supporting a lot of this stuff. Uh, And, and, and similarly for Xers uh, who were born in the early 60s, came of age with Reagan, Uh, they continue to vote more uh, Republican than people their age bracket uh, Mm -hmm. even today. So, so this is the, um, um, this is the problem you deal with if you're a Republican. And I would say Republicans, I think, have to, make a, have to think outside the box at this point. They really have to think, how can we get our message to expand our coalition? Uh, they need a coalition. They can't just keep doubling down on people who who's, you know, sort of reinforcing their, their core base. Uh, that's only going to work so far. Uh, you know, it's only going to take them so far, and it's unlikely to
2: be successful well would that i mean does it does it have to be a certain way does the turn have to be a turn in the political party in other words does the blue flag carry as far as it can into the very end like literally i mean we have eight or nine years left on your timeline here so yeah. you know, trying to think yeah. that through in terms of what happens well, next
0: typically if you're going to have if 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 public policies and uh, is going to be changed and you're going to make you know kind of sweeping reforms and you're kind of reshape institutions uh, one party is going to have to take charge, right? Yep. That was easy, easy for Lincoln during the, during the Civil War. All the Democrats just left. <laughs> they seceded. So, you know, suddenly the, <laughs> the Republicans ran everything, right? That was easy. Uh, and, and obviously during the New Deal, and you saw the same thing through the American Revolution, one party achieves dominance and, and it reshapes things. Uh, and then, of course, you have different generational waves within that Uh, I think a lot of the power for uh, uh, building up as opposed to tearing down uh, comes from the, the rising adult generation, which is this case in the millennials. And back in the
2: 1930s, it was the GI generation. It's interesting. And how do we start to put, um, and I guess maybe some, you know, just to get people up to speed on, on, on the gray, you know, what, what do you call them, the gray beard or the gray person at this, at this stage? <laughs> the gray champion. The gray champion. Yeah. Who, the yeah. gray champion. And, and I think everybody would have a, a pretty good guess on, on who they think that that was and who the next one would be. And Kamala Harris. Right. Well,
0: you know, gray champions are, um, are, are made. They're not born. Uh, and very often, these are people, they're always uh, representing an older generation. They never belong to uh, you know, the generation of young adults. So uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was an example of a great champion for the GI generation. It's amazing how many of them, how many of the great liberals that came out of that uh, generation, including uh, you know, uh, you know, Kennedy and, and, and LBJ, uh, just worshipped him you know, mm-hmm. as, as young adults. Um, uh, for the Civil War, it was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was the, the older leader who was very deft at compromising and coalition building. A lot of people don't understand Lincoln. Uh, he was—he uh, was—he was—he uh, was very late, you know, to actually endorse, you know, emancipation and so on. He was very canny about it. He wanted all those border states, you know, in, in his hands first, right? Before really prosecuting the war, he was—he was very good. Um, and and for you know many candidates, probably for the American Revolution, an obvious one that comes to mind, who, who was just universally venerated, venerated even during his lifetime, uh, was George Washington. But these are these are definitely older leaders. They represent uh, either the nomad or the prophet archetype, and they are. They are made, they're not born, meaning these people are not necessarily people that you would have bet on before the crisis. Uh, They simply adapt and seize the opportunity. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was an extremely unlikely person. I mean, no one, you know, just given his lowly origins and his gawkiness (laughs) and his awkwardness and the almost flukish way in which he was elected in a four-way election in, in 1860, the fact that he got into power at all but he used his opportunities masterfully. FDR the same way. FDR very much unlike his, um, you know, his third uncle uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, was not particularly um, uh, uh, gifted. Uh, no one ever thought it. You know, everyone thought Teddy Roosevelt was, you know, just this incredible dynamo. I mean, he was he was just an amazing person even as a young adult. Uh, you know, writing books, uh, uh, just 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 an incredible and charismatic per- person. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not, and there was a lot of misgivings uh, even in 1932, despite the fact that how poorly uh, Al Smith and the Democrats performed in 1928, uh, a lot of misgivings about him taking uh, the, the, uh, the nomination. And he, he, again, he started slowly. He actually started as a moderate. He ran on a, on a as you know, platform of balancing the budget. It was, it was actually very cautious but he gradually was able to work the system very deftly, particularly in the realm of, of building coalitions, never wanted to get too far ahead of the, of the public. I think he was very good at that, particularly with regard to entry into World War II. I mean, that was masterful because I think he, with the oil embargo against Japan, I think he, he knew where this was leading. I mean, it could only lead one place, right? There's no way Japan could survive with this uh, uh, stranglehold on its source of energy. But he sort of, you know, I'm, I'm not responsible for this. And then, of course, the attack. Oh, we're outraged, right? Uh, I, I think it was definitely done. And he ba- basically maneuvered public opinion to where he wanted. Uh, and he was, he was, in the end, uh, epically successful. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, uh, and on the, on the question of Kamala Harris, or when we start to think about um, females in history, I mean, I, obviously, I can think of one in the UK in particular.
0: Well, I think, you know, she's, she's, a, she's a woman to watch. Uh, she definitely has uh, charisma, you know, some would say an attitude. Uh, she can kind of take control of a room, I think. Uh, I think that's clear. Uh, I think she displayed <laughs> a little bit of that in, in her debate against uh, uh, Mike Pence, right? Uh, and, and again, we have to wait and see. Uh, the 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 persona will appear in the context of events. Will they take advantage of the events? Without the events, you can't really achieve that. Um, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton used to complain, you know, when he left the presidency, he wished there had been a crisis. You know, he could have been such a great president. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, he was a reason he was reasonably popular president. Uh, you know, he sort of rode the tides of of the 1990s but nothing really happened in the 1990s, and nothing was going to happen, right? I mean, he basically sort of went along with, um, you know, big government doesn't have to be that powerful, we're going to balance the budget, we're going to get rid of welfare, as you know, we're going to kind of ride the wave of sort of, you know, this prosperity and and the tech revolution. And he was never really able, he didn't have the opportunity to, to become what he would consider a great leader. So he was always... He was a little bit frustrated there, but uh, I, I think the same way as you could say uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was, um, he, he, he wanted to do great things. It just wasn't, you know, the moment wasn't right for him.
2: Yeah, I, I think that, that that's something, at least when I think about markets, I think about a lot. It, it has nothing to do with, like, some government person trying to do something. It, it happens at a particular time when a certain move particularly matters. I mean, it's just- There's an opportunity. It,
0: and it, you seize it. It's a combination of opportunity and being able to
2: seize it deftly, wisely, right. uh, practically. Well, I think like people are quite attracted to your framework, you know, obviously on generations. But once you go generations and genders and we start to, you know, people start to say, wow, this really, you know, he says something's turning. That that sounds like or looks like it's turning. And that's, yeah. um, I think that that's, Something that, you know, I know you tighten it up, but also on the institutional point, I just want to make sure I got this question to you because you wrote about it today. You know, this distrust and replacing of institutions, which is, you know, polling, like people look at, they get upset about Trump, but Trump's upset about something that probably a lot of Americans are upset about. If they could have a better polling system or, hey, some some actual polls that were accurate, you know, they'd probably take that.
0: Yeah, the, the accuracy of the polls is a really interesting question. Um, I mean, it turns out that the national uh, polls uh, were obviously somewhat overestimating for the Democrats, but within the margin of error. Uh, going into election eve, uh, Biden was favored by 7.2 percentage points. Uh, we expect uh, that Biden will get about 4.5 margin. And by the way, if you don't believe me, if you don't think he's going to reach it, uh <laughs> you can go and predict it and make money. So I'm just saying, you know, uh, there's a market actually for that. You're gonna bet on the margin. And right now it's about 50-50, actually slightly favoring over 4.5%. But here's my point. If he comes in at 4.5, that's gonna be within three percentage points of 7.2. That's within the margin of error. And by the way, um, uh, that's that's a pretty large uh, margin. Uh, That is the largest margin since Obama in 2008. And going back before that, it's the largest since 1996. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton over Bob Dole. Uh, so it's a reasonably large margin. It, interestingly, Keith, it's the largest margin for someone running against an incumbent since Ronald Reagan in 1980. Right. Hmm. Popular margin. Uh, of course, Reagan's was bigger, something like, you know, it was over 9%. But so so, I don't think that one was off. Now, the, 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 um, the states, uh, the, the uh, battleground states kind of went either way, but they generally came in kind of how we were calling them. Uh, I think where they really got it wrong, systematically wrong, and not within the margin of error was the, all the down-ticket uh, decisions. Uh, there was a big fail for the Democrats. Uh, everyone thought that they were more likely than not to retake the Senate uh, they've only gained a net one seat. They have t- two obviously up for grabs in Florida. They're going to be hard pressed to even take one of the, uh, excuse me, in Georgia. Uh, this is the um, sort of the, you know, the, the second stage of the jungle primary, and then and then the, one, the regular election that's going to be. This is both on January 5th. So that's in Georgia. They'll be lucky to take even one of those. So they're almost surely not going to take back the Senate. Uh, and they a big fail in the House, right? Uh, they they actually have lost at least so far a net five seats. I think three flipped in, in favor of the of the um, Democrats, eight flipped in favor of the Republicans, uh, and they haven't done very well in the state and local you know state elections either, uh, which is actually a shame for them because. Next year will be all the redistricting, right? The 2020 census is going to come out. So that's an all important year to have you winning the state legislatures. Uh, They didn't do as well as they liked. Um, What went wrong? Uh, And I I recently, just this morning, actually did a big long piece on that. And we go through the various reasons. Uh, One of them I think is obviously the in-person campaigning by Trump. Uh, He was, um, I mean, Democrats said it was foolish. Uh, but Trump partisans thought it was, um, you know, pretty gutsy, pretty brave. And the the Trump team went out house to house, even personally, even in the midst of the pandemic. And and there's no question that in-person beats online, Keith, every time. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, you get out and you start mixing with the folks. It, it definitely makes a difference. And Trump was a dynamo in the last few days uh, before the election. I think the second one was... Um, The Biden and the the head team did not sufficiently control what I would call their social and cultural left. Um, And I'm talking about stuff like, you know, defund the police and sort of the the spirit of open borders, uh, systemic racism, a lot of this stuff. And and as a result, uh, a lot of moderates uh, running in the House have been complaining. I mean, you know, just go on The New York Times, Washington Post, you can see these people complaining. Now that the election's over, I mean, they're speaking their mind about this stuff. What? Get rid of fracking? You know, in Pennsylvania, are you joking? And and you know, that's never going to happen anyway. So <laughs> why are you doing? You're just losing me my district, right? So these are, in other words, um, uh, uh, ideological signpost issues, which are not terribly practical, which galvanize your really core base, but lose you all your marginal districts, right? And so there's, there's going to be tremendous tension, I think, within the Democratic Party over this, uh, and particularly the whole issue of race and crime. We know that that was hugely motivating uh, for voters this year. Um, I think for 67% of voters, they said that was a major issue. For about 20%, it was the most important issue. There was switching either way, but I think most of them was, you know, moderate, moderate. Uh, Moderate Democrats switching and voting Republican rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, so this is something that the Democrats will have to deal with. There's a great deal more because they are more of a coal- coalitional party, there's a great deal of more tension. There's also a great deal of more age tension, right? They've got a very activated uh, uh, millennial cadre, and they, they've got this, you know, pretty solid, you know, early wave boomer, silent generation cadre, particularly of leaders. So anyway, that's going to be uh, interesting to watch. And finally, the whole issue of the shy Trump voter. Remember, we, we've talked about that many times. Um, I think that did show up a little bit. Uh, it's it's very interesting if you, uh, one person, uh, this was a big pollster, USC, actually asked a question, if you ask people, who are all my friends going to vote for, you get a more accurate poll than asking, who are you going to vote for? Right, and you know, if you would ask that question, if you, you most of these polls, you say, "Who am, who am I going to vote for?" Ten percent for Biden. If you would ask, "Who are my all my friends and the people I know going to vote for?" It, it would have been more <laughs> much more like five or six for Biden, which is much more close to the right. In other words, deflect it. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do, but let me just talk about you know the people around me. Right. Um, And interestingly though, I think where we've gotten the the shy Trump voter wrong is that we have laid uh, too much emphasis on Trump. Actually, I think it's just a shy Republican voter phenomenon. And and interestingly enough, in the data that I'm looking at, it actually, uh, the shyness goes up by income and education level. In other words, higher income, highly educated Republicans, particularly moderates, are the most shy about talking about, right? They're the most fearful of you know, political discussion, impacts on their job, their career, you know, their friends. And, and this is not the image we got. In other words, these are not necessarily the Trump voters. Uh, these would be more like the people voting for Susan Collins in Maine. Mm. And by the way, we had an epic fail on that, right? I mean, we we underestimated her vote by more than 10 percentage points. A moderate, totally respectable, right? <laughs> been in the Senate for God knows how long, right? Well, she won. Yeah. Uh, that was not expected, and so I think that's an issue as well.
2: Well, I, uh, all these things, I mean, they're so interwoven, and that's why so many people are so interested in again your framework. Uh, but I'm trying to get to the, yeah, I don't know how the hell you get to the to the end of the fourth turning, and and I, I'm certainly uh, excited for you to give us, yeah, if you want to see, you know, winter is coming. They get it. It's the four, It sounds bad. Things are bad. It looked really bad, but now you get a lot of people that think it's really good and other people that think it's really bad. And there's a brokenness to the institutions. Like to me, and and I, I, it's interesting. I mean, I'm my own, obviously my own piece of work here and I'm not Republican or Democrat, but I just tweet something really simple. Like you guys are all crazy. If you're all left and you're all right and you have to push either, either side, for a math guy that just doesn't compute. And I get so much feedback on that, Neil. I know I'm a Gen X guy, I got my own problems you know, but to me i'm speaking to the solution to the brokenness which is partisanship and that to me i'm wondering if i'm right or if i'm wrong or if it's just going to continue to be partisan and 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 you can't really speak that way out in public unless you're as dumb enough as i am to do it <laughs> uh you know i uh, i think actually
0: when i when i talk to people and you know talk to clients and so on um there is widespread acknowledgement that Large institutions in America are broken, and simply in their in their effectiveness and their cost. I mean, a good example is higher education, broken. Uh, our healthcare system, you know, that's what 18.7 percent of GDP, completely broken. I mean, if we if we measured, you know. Productivity in terms of better health against rising costs, that's like negative productivity growth, right, over the past 30 years. Yeah. But no one questions it. Everyone just allows the providers to spend, um, you know, their people's money, right? And that's fine. And, you know, we can't seem to get our hands on it, right? Um, I think any trust in America is broken. Um, I think uh, regulation of uh, social media is, is broken. And I think it's very hard for, to relatively individualist generations, uh, namely Gen Xers and Boomers, to kind of back away from their lifelong preoccupation from liberating us you know, uh, from, from government, from the culture, from tradition, and letting everyone go their own way, to come to grips with what are essentially systemic institutional failures. We see that very strongly, by the way. I think that's why there was such um, incredible pessimism about America's response to COVID-19, right? Uh, which COVID-19 I think exposed everything dysfunctional uh, about <laughs> our culture, our libertarian culture, our political system, our you know federal political system where there's no national authority. No, and uh, uh, and fascinating, Keith, is that older generations were the ones mainly supporting. You know, protect my rights. I don't have to go outside without a mask. You know, these are the ones most in These are the ones most dying, and they're least likely to have a job that that, that requires their presence, right? So they would suffer least and benefit more by actually st- and a strict enforcement policy that could get this under control. Millennials, who are least likely to die, most likely to be unemployed, you know, in a in a shutdown, are most in favor of a systematic nationally led policy. And this inversion of age bracket responses to COVID has fascinated me. And I see it in a lot of other areas of American life where you see the younger generation actually more in favor of something you know, with authority, the systemic, that's top down, that actually takes all the what you've learned around the world and actually applies it thoroughly uh, for a system-wide
2: solution. You know, that, that that that's like, um th- that's, that's what I mean. You know, we have, if the thing, if we're going, winter is coming and the bad shit's going to happen, Neil, I mean, why is it that so many people that, that's the millennial generation asking for that, my generation and the generation older than I, they think that the answer to all this is the Fed, government spending, more government, the government's here. Like, I mean, this is, to me... This is bananas. Like, it makes you kind of, I guess it brings you back to the, at least brings me back to the Benjamin Franklin saying, like, how much liberty are we willing to give up to give us some short-term financial security? And to me, okay, that's like a lot of that's in the stock market, for example, is one way where you could see kind of, wow, we fixed it. We fixed it using the broken institutions.
0: Well, as I recall back in the late 60s, um, it was boomers who insisted, if it feels good, do it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there you've got the Fed policy. There you got stimulus, right? Let's, yeah. uh, don't think about tomorrow. Uh, I remember that from the late 60s as well. So, you know, that's where we are today. These people are now in charge. Yeah. And uh, so, where is this going to come out? You know, what are we looking at? What are some of the long term shifts we're going to see? You've talked about one of them, Keith, in uh, a lot of your recent shows. And that's inflation pressure, um, you know, as as uh, modern monetary theory, I think, becomes de facto uh, uh, accepted uh, by most of the most of the world's advanced economies. Uh, you know, if real rates of interest are negative, why you'd just be stupid not to just, just borrow as much as you want, just give it to everyone who needs it. Right. I mean, that would just be perverse. right? So. We're going to engage in this, and I think that uh, right now I would not want to be, uh, at least on a uh, on a systematic or long-term basis, heavily invested in nominal assets right now. Right? I mean, that would just be my you know overall feeling about that because I think uh, the inflation that comes out of monetary theory. First of all, you know the Fed guarantees it's not going to happen, and they're going to keep interest rates low until I don't know for the next 24 months. But of course, once the Fed starts having to chase inflation expectations upward, that's when you're going to get the huge bond crash, right? Yeah. And and so you you've got it you've got to prepare for that. I think, uh, I, I, uh, and and it's going to be regarded if inflation does happen, it won't even be regarded as a bug. It'll be a feature, because that way we take wealth away from the creditors give it all to the debtors you know we tip our economy away from the old give it a little bit of advantage to the young uh, so I think in many ways this is sort of a win-win I think policy always moves in the default direction of where there seems to be a lot more benefits than penalties i think we are going to move that way um, I think in foreign policy we're going to move toward more engagement abroad I mean that's biden's you know leitmotif, right we're gonna be closer to our allies. We're going to we're going to engage. We're going to resolidify our alliances. We're going to well. I think that there, there are issues that are going to come out of that. Um, you know, increasing share of Americans. Uh, 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 think that we have interest at stake uh, in you know in the it, you know in the Western Pacific, and I think those are going to come out as well. I think that's kind of the foreign policy danger. Of, uh, uh which is which might rise rapidly to the fore in 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 the fourth turning uh, we've seen it in every other fourth turning and by the way the willingness of Americans to actually engage in conflict in defensive alliances over the past four or five years has been rising I mean I watch these opinion polls uh strongly interestingly on many of these flashpoints Democrats are more willing uh, to actually, engage in conflict now than Republicans. This is a complete turnaround, right? Mm-hmm. So the Republicans are increasingly becoming the, the party of isolationists, uh, and the Democrats are becoming the party of a global engagement, and if necessary, yeah, we're going to you know enforce our will. Uh, this again reminds you a lot, does it not, of the 1930s. I think another issue we're going to see, and I know that a lot has been written on it, Keith, uh, is secession or nullification. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, that many people who voted for Trump, uh, many people uh, who live in the red zone, um, will not accept this presidency. I mean, he's sort of illegitimate. They'll probably go along with it, so long as there's no big issue that rubs them the wrong way. But I think this could be very interesting if you have some sort of tax policy, could be income tax, corporation tax, inheritance tax, could be a regulatory ruling. I don't know, either on energy. Uh, Or or something involving, you know, the culture, right? And you could suddenly have a movement of governors, uh, uh, people saying, you know, we're just not going to enforce that. Mm And this used to be called nullification. It's come up repeatedly in American history. actually, you know, Jefferson and Madison actually first raised it with the Alien and Sedition Acts. This goes way back in the late 1790s, and then of course, you know. Calhoun raised it with regard to Southern state rights, but anyway, it's repeatedly been invoked, and every time it's invoked, it always raises a specter. Well, you gonna let that stand, or are you <laughs> gonna go in and challenge it? Can you really let that stand if, if a governor just says, "No, you know that particular rule, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna pay those tax revenues"? Well, that kind of dares the blue zone, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And a, and a blue zone that feels vulnerable might say, "No, no." We're going to enforce it. We can't back down on this one. Of course, that gives you your, you know, that gives you your, your, your another crisis scenario. I think there are a lot of places this could go, Keith. And and um, you kind of keep it's sort of like three-dimensional chess. You kind of keep kind of keep all of those things happening, right? All of those eventualities, possibly even playing out uh, at the same time
2: yeah and then it all breaks you know that's what people want like that this to me and, and you know because we're at least i think in my own little mind you know sometimes tries to get this to what party wins the whole bloody thing fails is basically what the fourth ter- turning is institutionally and to me yes. like if you and here's a and by the way if you have questions please ask them. some of the questions the one that just moved to number one in the queue literally nails this right on the head I mean and and I agree with it in terms of this word socialism because socialism has been a bipartisan policy let's be very clear on that from a market perspective absolutely joining the Treasury with the Fed and spending trillions at a time and debating whether or not it should be an extra half a trillion that's socialism I mean it's not there's no there's no conservatism to that And and this question uh, from Alex is, is, you've said that socialism is in part the millennial millennial mindset. Will this be something that fails in the long term? Could that be the fourth turning? Everything fails in the long term.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everything fails in the long term because what happens is even if it works, you need to adjust it, right? The, the society will enter a new mood, a new phase. People will want different things. Yeah. You'll have a problem of excess, you'll overshoot. Uh, but I do say that in fourth turnings, government always grows stronger. And yeah. I mean much stronger. That's just a into rule. it. Into it or coming, I thought coming out of it, the government gets eviscerated, no? Well, no, coming out of it, it remains strong through the what we call the first turning, right? But it no longer is in crisis. It just very strong institutions. The the generation that that fought the crisis built all these strong institutions, and then they're just beginning to enter midlife, right, and taking over leadership of them. So that would be, for instance, the American high, right? The late 40s, the the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John yep. Kennedy, institutions very strong. I mean unions, big corporations. When when uh, Kennedy wanted to. Thought that the steel makers were raising their prices too much. He just got on the phone, right? Yeah, hey, yeah, take those, <laughs> take those prices down. And, and so the GIs had this very top-down mentality when it came to running the economy. We were a very engaged people. Most people were all civically engaged. There was a tremendous optimism and trust in America back then. And of course, big institutions thrived off that and they used it. We made huge strides uh, on the, in the 1950s, uh, little acknowledged today, not just in terms of infrastructure, uh, you know, Amerigo vaccines, uh, you know, the, all the research that led to everything from the moon launch to transistors, but also in things like civil rights uh, and, uh, you know, tremendous migration of African-Americans out of the South, for example. We, we had huge equalizing trends in income and wealth uh in the late 40s 1950s throughout most of the 1960s even well that came to an end right so we entered our next turning that was the second turning that's an awakening and you know that's kind of when you know a uh, hell breaks loose and all those trends begin to turn a different direction that becomes a turning away from trust obviously and a turning toward individualism uh and and awakenings have an interesting you know unity of their own if you if you go and, and the the, the, the rising generation during an awakening is what we call a prophet archetype. Most recently, it was boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had you know earlier generations like that, the missionary generation born just after the Civil War, the transcendental generation born just after the American Revolution. Uh, this was the generation of, um, of Jefferson Davis and uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and, and Emerson and Thoreau and all those young adults who founded... You know communes and and feminist clubs all over america i mean they were incredibly powerful generation in the culture uh just as the prophet archetype always is Hmm.
2: all right uh that's a that's a jammed uh jammed answer to a loaded question uh here's here's another one is the fourth turning a global event or will this one be the first one that's global
0: uh, that's an excellent question. And uh, actually, in a in a book I'm doing right now, but I should mention that, by the way. <laughs> so, I was going to ask you, but uh, now you're
2: going to say it. Just say it.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I got a book coming out, but that's actually one thing we're going to talk a lot more about. A lot of these trends we see today are global, meaning there's a lot of coincidence today between uh, generational trends worldwide. Uh, and we've seen this ever since the Great Depression and World War II, where we saw a big civic generation come of age. Uh, You know, whether it was the Long March generation in China, the independence generation in India, obviously everyone who fought in World War II. Um, And then since then, we've seen very similar archetypes. They may be separated a little bit in terms of age and birth years, but we saw a war child generation coming out of the Depression of World War II. We definitely saw a global boomer generation making itself known in in 1968, you know, whether it's in... uh, uh, Germany or, or Paris. Uh, and and uh, we have a, even a global generation X, you know, very mm-hmm. drawn to urban life, markets, uh, hip hop, uh, which made itself known in, in the 1990s. You know, the Germans called this the Berlin generation for obvious reasons with reunification. And now we're seeing evidence of a global millennial generation. I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, There's some fascinating work now done by Roberta Fawa, who's in charge of the uh, Cambridge Center for for Democracy, as well as Yasha Monk, who works at Johns Hopkins. And they've been pointing out that faith in democracy, trust in democracy, confidence in democracy is dropping in all of these areas of the world, but it's dropping most rapidly among young adults, that is to say global millennials. Uh, they are disproportionately drawn to populism of the right and left, and they're disproportionately happier whenever populism wins. Um, and this is actually news to a lot of people who think that millennials just want, you know, very sort of moderate uh, antiseptic technocrats. Uh, they, they, they don't. Um, and, and so you see this in Southern Europe. You see it, I think, most remarkably in, in, in Southern Asia, whether you're looking at India, Narendra Modi or Burma or, you know, obviously China, where you see an increasing number of the rising generation want to join the Communist Party uh, and revering, you know, Uncle Xi, you see it, uh, Abe Shinzo, you see it in the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. This is a global movement. We see it now and obviously in Latin America, Keith, we've we've talked a lot about, you know, AMLO and and, and, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, I think, Wants to do everything that Trump ever did. He even got coronavirus, right? <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> oh you know, boy!
0: They're imitating everything that each other does, uh, and and so this is global now, right? These trends are global, and people take pay too much attention to right versus left. Actually, I actually think that's actually less operative. The point is, it's not liberal particularly, and it's not procedurally democratic. This is a generation that wants to galvanize, mobilize and make big changes in a system that they believe isn't working for their future.
2: This is, um, and this, I think this lends itself to this next question, which uh, from Karen, it's, she calls it a multifaceted question, because it is, you know, and, and it's using really COVID as the catalyst, like COVID was our first global, you know, of the modern era, obviously pandemic, uh, but crisis, you know, legitimate crisis, some kind of a, I've heard a lot of our institutional clients have often, because they're constantly trying to paint What's happening in the market is is that's going to be the next three to five years. We just came out of World War II. Did you see what stocks did after that? But that's not the question. I'm just ranting a bit. Uh, This is, do you think COVID and the fallout is is the actual crisis? Or do you think there are more events yet to come that we don't know uh, that will spurn even more severe crisis globally?
0: Well, what typically happens is crisis leads to crisis. So in other words, if crisis... Accentuates the dysfunction. You increase the likelihood
2: of a next crisis. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And and
0: typically I'm a fractal guy, it, man.
2: That's how it goes. It's like it's not like you got similar you sets. Know, they cause each other to happen. You right. know. Right. And
0: and and it and I'm it not some linear growing, guy. I get it.
2: And it's growing <laughs> rapidity. It's kind of like
0: a chain reaction. And what happens is is that all of these individual crises gradually combine into one single huge. Battle or contest, and you have to win that one, right? And then when that gets solved, all the other questions get solved. I mean, a great example, Keith, is is World War II eventually, which is an enormous global war. But the solution of World War II, you notice, involved everything from the United Nations to the World Bank to the IMF to Bretton Woods. It was gonna solve all of the problems of the nineteen thirties you know, not just fascism, but uh, uh, predatory trade policies, and it was going to solve all of our monetary issues, it was going to solve, you know, global labor problems. In other words, everything What came down to this one incredible um, uh, battle that had to be won. And that increasing focusing of energy as fourth turnings go on from a lot of disparate causes it is very typical. I uh, Again, go back through other crises and, and you see a similar dynamic.
2: Well, this is this is what gets in. We're getting closer to out of time here, but at least I'm getting to kind of the, the wood here. Uh, at least I think I'm getting down to the wood, which is, you know, Trumpism. And a lot of people over the years have, you know, to your point, you've made this point, And that's that's why I, I believe this to be true. People don't understand that it's not about Trump. It's about, it's something much larger than Trump. So it's indefinitely going to be called Trumpism. Does it have to be Trumpism? Or what is the, here's the question from Sergey, what is the likely course of, of, of Trumpism and its future? And can it be something else that it always was?
0: Well, this is going to be, I think, more interesting. Uh, you have two very interesting things happening now in politics within each party, right? So we've already talked a little bit about the tensions within the Democratic Party between, you know, a very woke, you know, and generally younger left and a and a more moderate center, right? Which is, which is, which is actually a larger spread in the Democratic Party being more of a coalitional party uh, than it is than it is with Trump. I think in the Republicans right now. I think the issue for Trump is that they have two sets of uh, leaders, right? I mean, on the one hand, they've got, uh, you know, Marco Rubio and Nikki Haley and, and, you know, a bunch of people you could say, you know, uh, uh, who are going to kind of be this more uh, moderate, maybe kind of, I don't know, Tory socialist or something party, which is going to be, you know, try to make a lot more inroads into moderate Democrats, right? It's clear what their strategy would be. In other words, we can retain Trump, but we can go and actually get that coalition, which the Biden coalition can't get. That's their strategy. And on the other hand, you're gonna have a younger group of people who ex- will exactly go out. This is the the Tom Cottons and the Ted Cruises, and maybe uh, you know, Josh Hawley and a number of these uh, senators, and they're gonna go out and they're gonna to try to take the mantle of the core Trump and amp it up, right? And and I think they will be fairly successful. I actually don't think that Trump will be a viable. Uh, that Trump himself uh, will remain a viable candidate. And the reason is, is because if you look at people, if you poll even in Trump land, uh, you know, even though they love his cause. Uh, they're often very frustrated by who he is, right? I think uh, even even the most devoted Trump fans could say, you know, we could have had a better, you know, exponent of this, you know, a better <laughs> representative of this philosophy, right? Uh, and in fact, I think in in fact, I think even from Trump's own point of view, he made just so many ridiculous mistakes. I mean, for instance, with COVID, that was his opportunity to sort of right? Become the authoritative leader that America would have wanted. Instead, he just completely whiffed and said, I'm not responsible. All these state governors. are. I mean, even for, even if you totally believed in, in Trump and everything about what that means, I just think that was a complete whiff. And on, on the stimulus, why didn't he do one better than, than uh, the House? Why didn't he say, I'm in favor of a $4 trillion bailout, <laughs> and I'm going to call it the Trump bailout? I mean, He would have really back, but he he would have had to have done that, you know, way back in July. He couldn't do that two weeks before the election, right? Uh, But anyway, he just I thought he just he wasn't even tactically very good. That was my real complaint about Trump. He had a lot of opportunities to actually use events productively, and he and he just missed. I don't think he saw it.
2: So the future of Trumpism is going to be whatever that guy is going to be. He's going to probably be his own media company. By the way, he's going to be competing with this guy. Oh, yeah. he'll be out there. Time. He'll
0: be on the radios. He'll be. He'll be certainly a big TV star, and and a lot of people will watch him. But uh, I think as a viable political candidate, no. I think the 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 nightmare for Republicans, of course, is if if like a little bit like Teddy Roosevelt, right? In uh in 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 uh, nineteen uh. Uh, in 1912, sort of running as another candidate and completely splitting the, you know, the red zone vote, right? And that would be a disaster. I mean, that would actually be a wonderful opportunity for true dominance by by the Democrats. And and we've had examples of that. I give you exa- again the example of the Civil War. The Republicans would not have won that massive victory had not the Whigs completely split. In the southern and and uh, you know northern uh, it had that the Democrats split between northern and southern uh, halves and uh, and then and then you know there was chaos complete fragmentation of the other side uh, particularly over the issue of slavery and that that was an opportunity and uh, the Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln made use of it and as a result they basically you know ran the country for the next 70 years
2: mm-hmm well, I mean, people, uh, maybe this is, uh, this is definitely my last question on this because I certainly don't know the answer, but I struggle with it. And I'll just tell you personally, I struggle with it. I think a lot of people do that have, you know, again, if I was something, I guess I'd be libertarian. I'd be conservative on, you know, taxes. And I kind of like it as a company that has to pay lower taxes because we can hire more people. You know, there's some pretty basic concepts that we have there that, that at least from my perspective, don't have to put me in a political box. But i have kids i have four kids at home right i mean i live in the in the in the uh, raging blue state of connecticut and they're told they're told every day every day you know that that that, that this this guy's bad and voting for democrat is good and right. i and i i my, my uh my second oldest daughter is old enough to ask me the question on, on election day she said mom you know who did you vote for so you know, of course laura voted for 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 biden and then she asked me, she still didn't know that I don't vote, and she said, because I can't vote, I'm a Canadian green card holder. And she said, Dad, who'd you vote for? And I said, for the objective party. And she and, and Laura looked at me like, holy shit, man, you did you really just say that to our kids? And and I and I and I and I started laughing, of course. But you know, is there a place and this is my question that's not a political statement. Is there a place in the fourth turning for the actual truth? I mean the fact-based, data-driven truth that you and I wake up, God willing, two feet on the floor every day. Hedgeye as an independent research provider has always had that at the core of our mission. I don't believe any of these parties. I believe the data. You know, is there a ru- Is there a spot for that? Or am I being too uh, KM about this, too utopian about this? And it just puts me squarely in the minority that I've always been in. No, you know, I... I uh
0: so I hate to give you a generational answer to your question. I'm going to talk for a second about Gen Xers. Um, I find this is the Gen X frustration with ideology and, and partisanship in general. Uh, Xers are very pragmatic. You know, I, I want to know the cause and the effect. You know, give me something that I can actually objectively look at and and I can actually build something. You know, my portfolio. How do I how do I invest? How do I you know what are the rules? What what do I actually do to make something happen? Right. And so I think you really have to, particularly in a fourth turning, differentiate between two realms. There's a realm of ideology in which what everyone believes is a self-created truth, right? In other words, it's kind of like, you know, Christianity or any big religion. If everyone believes it, it kind of just makes its (laughs) own truth, right? Because you kind of have to believe it and, you know, you're right. You understand what I mean, right? Yeah. It's the same way with (coughs) ideology. I mean, if everyone believes it, well, then that becomes a tool that you can use. You kind of have to go along with it in order to organize people and motivate them. And it it sort of creates itself. But then you have another realm, which is the fact that you're either right or wrong when it comes to something technological, something with regard to a market bet. Uh, You may be right. You may be wrong. And I think effective leaders know how to operate in both realms. In other words, they know ideology is ideology. We need to kind of, you know, pander that or encourage it. On the other hand, there's this realm. If I'm going to send, you know, if if I'm going to send, you know, Patton into the Ardennes, or if I'm going to storm ashore at D-Day, or I'm going to decide, you know, not to island hop, but do some other kind of strategy in World War II, or I'm going to decide to, you know, to actually, you know, hike taxes in 1937, that will have... Real-world consequences independently of what anyone believes. And I think the secret in life, Keith see, here we go, Boomer kind of giving an exercise <laughs> in life. the secret in life is to keep those different realms apart. There's yeah. a realm where real things have real effects, and it doesn't matter what you think about it, right?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean it's going mean, to happen that way. Well, it's no, a good COVID-19 thing I 19 uh... is a good example. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't start with my uh, ideology as a Roman Catholic Irish guy. I mean, I didn't go with that. The ideology is absolutely not where I was. And that's that's the point that I was trying to make with Lucy, who's my daughter, on I'm of the objective party, like I'm my own party. I mean, there's no party for me. I'm just trying to stay on the empirical path. And I, and I do think a lot of people that I talk to about this that engage, in, and they have to be – closer to your friend or you never know they'll just cancel you for life right I mean and like I care I mean I, people cancel me all the time wow but, but what I'm, I'm, but but it's really like um it's it's really an interesting conversation within the conversation that I often find myself having with political partisans
0: I'm my own party that's spoken like a
2: true excerpt
0: and, and I'll tell you come the revolution we won't try to mobilize you we'll just leave you
2: alone. Yeah, exactly yeah well that's i guess maybe that's why somebody probably gave me the covid i just got locked up for 10 days in my own house. uh and my wife and by the way as a final point she was probably pretty happy about that too so uh uh anyway th- thank you thank you very much i mean you as always you know you're g- giving us all an education and i think that that for for me the non-ideologue that's what i was looking for so thanks for spending the time we, we right, certainly this is appreciate it and good luck with your new book. Uh, Neil's next book is coming out in 2022, is it? Is it gonna yeah, be?
0: 2022. Uh, we expect I'll, I have to finish it by the
2: end of next year, but uh, we're already doing a lot of work on it. So. Awesome. We're, uh, we're all looking forward to that. He's Neil Howe. I'm Keith McCullough. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else, deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration, that's H-O-W-E, Generation.
1: This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable, but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgei. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.